But tonight we're going to continue our series on Elisha and talk about Elisha and the widow. And uh, what might not be extremely obvious to you right now is the fact that I actually wear glasses, but I don't have them on at the moment. But my eyes are bad and and uh, quite a few years ago, I headed off to the optometrist because I was getting headaches and couldn't focus on computer screens and therefore couldn't work effectively, which was not always a bad thing. Um, but I headed off to the optometrist and went to a couple of different ones and eventually found out that I had a astigmatism in my left eye, which is not completely uncommon. But uh, the, the difference in the lens that I needed to have was such a big jump that they had to do it incrementally over a couple of years just so that I didn't get dizzy and fall over and run into things any more than I normally do. So I wear the, I'm supposed to wear glasses, but I don't wear them because I don't like having things like on my face, <laughs> like glasses and they, they fog up and they get dirty and mostly it's probably because I can't rock a pair of glasses as good as the Kolosinski brothers can. Just can't find ones that are wide enough for my head and all those kind of things. So I don't often wear them. But the problem is that that does bad things to me. Because if you wear glasses or you have poor eyesight as well, you know that three things happen to you when you don't wear your glasses for an extended period of time. Number one, you get really tired. Is anyone else? Nope, just me. Good. The second thing is it causes you pain. I get really bad headaches at the end of the day if I haven't worn my glasses for a whole day. Does anyone else? One person, two, good. We're getting there. Excellent. And the third thing is that I can't see things properly. Yeah, that's pretty common. And uh, my wife will often chastise me because she'll find me sitting at the computer or in a movie theater or somewhere. I mean, she'll be with me. She won't just find me in the movie theater. That hasn't happened for many years. But I'll, I'll have my, my left eye shut just so that I can kind of make focus and read what time it is. So it's 5.44. Great. I've got like an hour and a half. That's good. But vision is a funny thing. Our eyes, how, you know, something like that can get, mess us up and make us tired and cause us to have pain and read situations completely incorrectly. And you know, like when you look at optical illusions and things like that. It's just crazy what your eyes are capable of doing. And Paul actually, in the first Corinthians, which we'll have a read of, and I'm still using my slimline Bible. I got the kids to buy me a large print Bible for Father's Day because I couldn't read it. No kidding, it's true. But first Corinthians 13 verse 12, Paul talks about eyesight or vision and he says, Now we see things imperfectly as in a poor mirror, but then we will see everything with clarity. In the message translation, it actually talks about that our eyesight as humans is like peering through or squinting through a fog that we can't see properly. And you see, this is what I find really interesting because what happens, obviously Paul here is talking about our spiritual vision, the way that we see the things of God. And he's talking about the fact that we just can't see them clearly because we're not God. We don't understand the way that he looks at situations, the way that he looks at the things in our life, the things that we're experiencing, the outcomes that he sees. We can't even comprehend or understand because we're human. And for us to see the things of God, and like in this series, we're looking at the miracles that were performed through Elisha. For us to even comprehend that, well, we just can't. 
Because to see the things of God, to see the miracles and the way that the supernatural works, well, for our our human eyes, it's just like peering through a squinty fog. It's like not being able to see properly. And I like what Paul's saying here because, you know, in the same way that it works in the physical and the spiritual, if we try and perceive the things of God and try and understand the way that He works and His promises and that through our eyes and do it in our own strength, well, we can end up the same way spiritually as we can physically. We can end up tired and burnt out. We can end up hurt and in pain. And we can end up misguided in the way that we see things. Because that's just how eyesight works, whether it's spiritual or whether it's physical. And so tonight we're going to be having a look at um, Elisha and the widow. And uh, I believe that through this story that we can learn to see things the way that God wants us to see things. You know, I, I just think, you know, if God took the time to record something in the scriptures, then it has to be there for a purpose, right? If this miracle not only occurred, but has stood through time and has been presented there in Second Kings for us, and there has to be something in this story, in this real-life account that was recorded, that is relevant to our life today, because this is our God, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if we look at this journey as we go through Elisha over the next many weeks, if we look at it and think, you know what, I'm just going to look at it through my human eyes, then we will glance over stories and we will think, yeah, you know what, that was the God of yesterday. But if we understand that we don't see things correctly because we're human, we don't completely understand the ways of God because we have natural human eyes, then we can start delving into these miracles that happened and realize that the God that did them back then is the God that is our God today. These aren't just stories of the Old Testament that were told in Sunday school so often, which we're going to look at in a minute. But these are things that are relevant to us today. But I think too often we end up looking at it through our natural vision. And of course, that makes us tired, causes us pain because we expect situations that don't happen. And we're misguided in what we believe and what we expect of God. So we're looking at Second Kings chapter 4. That's where we find the story of Elisha and widow, the widow. And um, I grew up in Sunday school, which was a great blessing. But I'm, I'm quite jealous of kids these days. Our kids out there in Sunday school or kids church, as we call it these days, um, they got all these cool things like projectors and, and not overhead projectors, like digital projectors. They've got iPads and LED TVs and veggie tails and all these things. When I was a kid, we had flannel board. Does anyone remember flannel board? Excellent. Well, flannel board is this really technical contraption with this really creative name where it's a flannelette sheet over a board. Flannel board, in case you didn't work that out. It's, it's an amazing piece of technology. And, um, and I can remember my Sunday school teacher, Auntie Ev, Auntie Evelyn, and she would have a, you know, a curriculum that um, she'd, you know, little cardboard cutouts of like the figurines in the story. And, and the flannelette, uh, the flannel board had this like adhesive type Velcro stuff on it. 
that would the cardboard pictures would stick to it. You guys really missed out if you never have flannel board. This this stuff was interesting. High tech. Yeah, this was the eighties, so it was all good. Um and and she would reenact the story by, you know, moving these figures across the flannel board. And it was incredible. Now I I tried to find a flannel board for tonight, but for some reason, they're hard to get. I mean, no one's even throwing them away. I guess everyone's keeping them because they're so precious. They're not on eBay. The museums don't have them. But I couldn't find a flannel board. But I, I thought, you know, it would be a good way to present this story tonight in the way that a lot of us would have grown up with in Sunday school. But alas, we couldn't find a, a flannel board. Um, so we've had to jump a generation. And I've gone to YouTube. And... And we're now in probably like the late 80s, which is like animated video and narrative. So I know I've missed a bit, but can we, can we jump to this video now? And we're going to hear the story of Elisha and the widow, Sunday school version. Yeah. And that was it. So how good was that narrator's voice, Right. If I had a Sunday school teacher that spoke like that, I would have spent a lot more time in Sunday school rather than sitting out in the corridor waiting to speak to the pastor's wife, which often happened to me. But the, the, the thing, the thing of why I wanted to show you this story is, like I said, I, I grew up in Sunday school, so I think I have probably heard the story of Elisha and the widow like at least a thousand times. I've probably heard it preach this story hundreds of times. Because it's such a popular story. But what I've noticed in coming back and, and reading through the life of Elisha as we, as we go through this series is how often, because of things like this, and I'm not disrespecting Sunday school because obviously when we're talking about kids, we, we bring it down to a level. But how often, and maybe this happens to you as well, but when I read this story... I don't read it with fresh eyes or with like the eyes of God that we talked about from Corinthians. I just hear the Sunday school version in my head. This kind of like sort of watered down version that I just read over without truly thinking, you know, what was God trying to show us about this story? Like he didn't just fill in a few passages in the Bible. He recorded this passage, this miracle for a reason for us to see something about it today. But so often in Sunday school, and I guess just in our general life, we kind of gloss over and read over things in the Word of God without truly grasping that, you know, this is our God. The God that, maybe not the one that was in that story, but the God of this miracle is the God that we had today, right? The God that we have access to. And, you know, Sunday school was was great and... But I think we, we often lose the context of a story. We don't get the chance to kind of get into the, the mix of it because we become familiar with them. Because when my Sunday school teacher would tell this story, Arnie Ev, um, she would tell it a little bit different. She would tell it kind of Sunday school politeness rather than the way that's read in the Bible. And it would, it would go something like this. It would say, you know, Elisha was rolling into town one day with his brethren or his friends or his guild. And, and along from the other side of the, the town square came a, a woman who had, whose husband had recently gone to heaven. 
Got to be polite at Sunday school. And the widow came up to Elisha and she so eloquently and politely, even though in her desperate time of need and loss, said, oh, Dear man of God, I beseech thee today. Your husband, my husband who served thee, well, he has unfortunately gone to be with the Lord and now I have nothing. And Elisha would say to the woman, Oh, dear woman who, even though you are obviously so cranky with the situation, you are so polite to me right now, I ask of thee, what, what do you have? And the widow replied, Well, I politely say I have nothing except this flask of oil that I just happened to brought, bring with me today. Now, I don't know about you, but I, like if I'm going to be honest with you tonight, I myself have, I've never been in a situation where, where I've lost a spouse, right? But I have been in times in my life where I have probably felt a little bit, tiny bit the way that the widow felt, a bit disgruntled with the way my life was going. Maybe I looked to the promises of God and, and they weren't happening. Or, or like this lady said, you know, given so much and given everything and now was left with nothing except creditors knocking on their door. You know, I don't know about you, but maybe you have found yourself in a position of like utter despair and running up to a man of God or to God or a woman of God and saying, what is going on? This is not the way that it was supposed to be. You told me. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But when I have felt myself in those situations, I didn't run up to God with Sunday school politeness and say, I beseech thee, O Lord. If I'm going to be, well, I can't really be honest and tell you probably some of the things that I said in those times in my life. But I want to suggest tonight that when the widow came up to Elisha, she wasn't all Sunday school polite, like God bless Annie Ev, and she did a good job. But when a widow, when a woman has lost her husband and comes running up to the man of God, she's going to be a lot more fiery. She's going to be far crankier. She's going to spot him from one side of the town square and run up and get right up in his grill and say, you, you who my husband served, you who said it would be okay, you who said if I gave everything that this wouldn't happen, and now look at me, I have nothing, nothing at all. Can anyone agree with me that that's more like what she would have been like? Excellent, three people, five, can I get a six? But I got to tell you, like we, we need to look at this scripture tonight, getting into the context of what really was going here. This woman had lost everything. She now had the creditors knocking on her door to take her house and her sons into slavery. And she was right up at God, at the man of God, the representation of God in this story, saying, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do? I've lost everything. I've got nothing. And I just, I love in, in, in my Bible when I read this, there's a full stop after nothing. Elisha turns to her and says, um, you know, what do you have? How can I help? What do you have? She says, nothing. And when I read this recently, again, with, with fresh eyes, looking at it, you know, what is it that God is saying to us through this? We've got to take a segue because 
The way she said nothing just reminds me of an epic, forgive me for this, but just reminds me of a teenager. Right? Because when I was a teenager, well, I was a teenager. And my, my mum and dad would get home from work and I think I might win some parents with this one, but my mum would walk in and say, hey, Adam, and I'd be, you know, watching TV, something important, and obviously had done all my homework and the housework and just sitting there relaxing, and and mum would say, Adam, how was your day at school? And I would say, good. Then my dad would walk in and say, well, what did you do at school today? I said, nothing. Yeah, see, teenagers are teenagers. Forgive me, Epic. Forgive me. But it's true. Teenagers kind of have this default response. Everything's good, and they never did nothing. And my dad would be like, are you sure it was good? Because, you know, I got a call from the principal, and his recollection of your day wasn't that he didn't use the word good. But still, that default response just comes up out of us. How was your day? Good. What did you do? Nothing. Now, I was determined. I've got three kids. They range from this height to this height. And I was determined that, that at their young age, not that my parents did anything wrong, but at their young age, I would kind of train them. So by the time they became wonderful teenagers, we would have a conversation. I'd say, how was your day? And we'd have a bit of dialogue. It'd be great. So I thought that I would do that. But I've already missed the boat. Like my kids aren't even teenagers yet, and they're like this. Now, my son started kindy this year, and honestly, honestly, first day of school, mate, how was your day? Good. Really? You've been counting down the days to school for like two months, and the best you can come up with is good. Well, what did you do? Nothing. Really? From the time that mummy dropped you off to the time that she picked you up, you just sat there and did nothing. Right? My Carter, who's two and a half, he's the same. If he's watching Peppa Pig, you cannot get a word out of him except good and nothing. But what it showed me is that how, you know, whether, you know, trying to get in there and and get this sorted before they were teenagers was, it was futile because there's just this kind of default human nature within us just to state an obvious answer just to relay something off the top of our head without even thinking about it. How was your day? Good. It's like Aussie Aussie culture is to answer by telling someone what you're not rather than what you are. Have you ever noticed that? How are you? Not bad. How long till we get there? Oh, not long. Now everything's backwards. It's just like default answers that come out of us. Just like in our kids. But the thing that I felt God showed me about this passage is that the widow had a choice right where she was out there. Do I respond with my default human nature, which is just to react to the situation that I'm in, to just comment on the experience that I'm in with the first thing that kind of spews out of my mouth? Or do I actually finish my sentence and give God a chance to do something. Because I wonder, we know as we read this story and from that amazing kind of reenactment that you saw there, which I know you struggle to see the difference between animation and realistic stuff there. 
but that she goes on to finish her sentence. She says, nothing, but what I do have is a little bit of oil. And I wonder and pose the question, if she had not finished her sentence, what would have happened? If she just let that default response from the situation that she was in just be her answer to the man of God proposing a solution to her problem, what would have happened? I think it would have just said, and the widow said nothing, and Elisha departed on his way. Because if she finished her sentence with nothing, there was no opportunity for God to do a miracle. There was no opportunity for the supernatural to come in and do something different. Because Elisha asked her the question, not, well, tell me what you don't have. Just tell me, what do you have? Nothing. But I do have a little bit of oil. So that makes me think, if she never finished her sentence, would it even have been recorded in the Bible? Probably not. What would be the point of the story? So then that poses two other questions. How many encounters, let's just say with Elisha, did people have where they allowed their default response to be the answer to God rather than finishing their sentences that didn't even get airplay in the Bible because they didn't present us an opportunity to learn something about our God? And the second question, how many times have we Miss the opportunity for God to do a miracle in our life. For the supernatural to come into a despairing situation. Because we simply responded with a reaction or a word without thought or without even answering the question that God asked us. How many times have we missed the opportunity for God to move in a situation because we didn't finish our sentence? So that's what I believe is the reason why this is recorded. It's a great Sunday school story. And if you want, I can give you the link to that YouTube video if you just want to play it over and over again. But what's greater than a Sunday school story is the fact that when we understand that we can't see a situation through our eyes and expect anything else than just getting tired and misguided and getting a headache and causing it pain. But when we understand that this is our God, this in 2 Kings 4, our God here, when we look at it and say, what did God want to show us for? He wants to show us that we need to finish our sentence. When we are in a place of despair, of loss, of hurt, of feeling tired, of brokenness, of a situation where we don't feel we have any options to get out of, when creditors are knocking on our door, when our sons are being taken into slavery, do we answer with nothing? Or do we finish the sentence? Do we finish the sentence? I love, um, and I'm going to close with, with this thought. We know the rest of the story. Elisha says to her, or she says, I, I have this little bit of oil that I just happen to have with me. And uh, all polite and, and that, of course, she wasn't desperate in her situation and her time of need. And Elisha says to her, go and 
and gather every vessel that you can. Send your sons up and down the street. Get every empty container, every jug, every empty Milo tin that you can find and bring it back to your house. Close all your doors and windows and start pouring that oil. And the Bible tells us that when she did that, that the oil did not stop until every jug was full. Right? We know this. We've all heard it in Sunday school. It's a great story. And, and we've talked about the jug so many times. But if we, let me flick to it. When she told the man of God what had happened. Now I can, I'll suggest that when she went back to Elisha the second time, she was Sunday school polite. So when you're telling this story, you can, you can be polite when she goes back to him because she's just become quite wealthy. So that, that, that'll, that'll always help you with your, um, your angst towards the man of God. So when she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts. See, this is the incredible thing that happens when we don't allow ourselves in our human nature that can't see things properly to just answer with a default response. Then when we finish the sentence, God can do a miracle that pays our debts. Right? That's what it said. But the great thing is, and this is what I love about our God, this is our God, is that He finishes His sentence as well. He expects us to do that, so He does the same. Because Elisha said to her, Now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and there will be enough money left over to support you and your sons. You see, this is the God that we serve, that you have access to today. The same God that did this miracle for Elisha, who wanted more than just getting the widow out of her immediate situation. The sentence wasn't finished with just enough to pay your debts. God finished it by saying, you now have enough to live. You remember that no no matter what we perceive a situation to be, no matter how we feel the mess is and what the solution is, we can't understand the way that God sees things. She went to the man of God and said, my husband is dead, what are you going to do about it? And God saw that that wasn't the problem. The problem was she needed to be able to live for the rest of her life. She'd lost the one that brought her support, that would look after her and her sons. So God finishes a sentence and says, there's not just enough to get you to pay your debt and get you the creditors off your back, but I'm going to give you enough oil to live and live and live, enough money to look after yourself for the rest of your days. You see, that's the God that we serve. This God from thousands of years ago who hasn't changed, who's the same today. The only thing that's changed is the way that we perceive him. Because we look at our situations, we do things in our strength. Letting our default response be the answer to the situation when he says, you know what? I don't want to just pay your debts. I want to give you enough to look after you for the rest of your day. Now, there's a, there's a, it's not a meaning of the word, but it's an expression that gets around as a, a definition of the word insanity. It says, the definition of insanity is 
doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that's the challenge that I want to bring to all of us tonight, including myself, is that in our situations in our life where we feel loss and despair, when we feel like there's creditors knocking on the door, when we feel like all these things are going wrong, do we just give it the same answer that we've always given it? Or can we do something different? Can we look at it through the eyes of God and say, you know what? I might have nothing, but what I do have is. I might feel like I have no purpose in my life, but what I do have is a promise from God that says that before I was even born, he planned the days for me. I might feel like I have nothing in my life, but the Bible tells me that his grace is sufficient for everything that I need. And that's what I believe we can learn from this passage of Elisha and the widow, that we need to finish our sentence. We need to look at this in a different way and understand that this God who wants more than just paying off our debts is available to us today. So I might ask the worship team to come back up and they'll play us a relevant song. Jesus just asked me what song. Have a lucky dip. We're going to have a time of worship to finish tonight before we get out there for the meat pies and everything that we look forward to on Sunday night supper. But don't worry, they're always too hot, so we've got time. But I just think we should have a, a time of worship because, you know, this is our God. This God that performed this incredible miracle is our God that we worship today. And at Northeast, you know, we are a big family. We don't just say it, we mean it. And if one of us is hurting, then, well, we're all hurting, right? And so as we worship, and and I'll pray in a moment, I just want to encourage you that if you want prayer, if you feel like you're in a situation where, where you can't finish your sentence, all you can see is nothing, then come down and our team will pray with you. And we will help you to see that there's so much more in your sentence than just that full stop. So why don't we stand? I'll pray and then we're going to sing a relevant worship song. <laughs> Lord, we thank you that, um, Lord, we thank you that you never change. We're so grateful and, and it's such a privilege to serve a God who we can read about in a book that's a thousand years old and realize and understand that you are exactly the same today. And Lord, we love you for that. And we love you because you love us. You care so much for us that that there's nothing that you would not do and have not already done for us, Lord. So as we move forward tonight, and we just pray and declare that, that we will look to you. That when you ask a question of us, of our situation, that no matter our despair, no matter what our physical human eyes will see, that we will trust that there's something greater that you have for us. And so, Lord, I just pray for our church tonight that if anyone is in this time of feeling nothing, that you surround them with people that encourage them, you put more promises in their heart to remind them. And every day, you let them grow a little bit closer to you. We thank you for it. Amen. As we worship, if you want prayer, come down the front and we'll pray for you.